0: Welcome to the Dublin Festival of History podcasts brought to you by Dublin City Council. In this episode from the 2019 Festival, historians Katrina Crowe and Donald Fallon present a selection of Great Irish Speeches performed by actors Cathy Belton and Brian Murray, recorded at Printworks Dublin Castle on 19th October 2019.
1: You're here, and we are delighted to welcome you to Great Irish Speeches, which is a personal selection made by Donald Fallon and myself. And over the next hour, you will hear speeches that we think are important and eloquent, ranging from one of the 18th century's great orators, uh, John Philpott Kern, through the pacifist Eva Gore Booth, the fervent unionist Edward Carson, the fervent anti-treaty activist Mary McSweeney, Taoiseach Eamon de Valera, New 1969 MP Bernadette Devlin, Mr. Justice Niall McCarthy on the X case, and Maura Gagan Quinn, decriminaliser of homosexuality. Our choices are overwhelmingly 20th century, as you can see. Our gender balance is impeccable. And our intention is to remind you of certain momentous events and perhaps to surprise you with words you may not have uh, come across before. The speeches are edited to a manageable length uh, for this event. Obviously, most of these speeches are much longer um, in their original format. So we've tried to be judicious about the way we edited them. We're going to take the speeches in chronological order. Each speech will be introduced by Donal or myself, whichever of us chose it. And we are honoured to have two of Ireland's great actors here with us today, Cathy Belton and Brian Murray, to read them for us. We hope you enjoy your trip into the eloquence and the passion of the past. And Donal will start now with John Philpotkirk.
2: So there are many divisive names, I suppose, uh, in the list today. We'll hear, for example, from Ebert Carson uh, and Eamon de Valera, among others. John Philpot Curran uh, is a name that may not be instantly recognisable to many people uh, today, but he was in his day one of the greatest uh, orators. Karl Marx referred to John Philpot Curran in a letter to his co-writer Frederick Engels as the only great lawyer and people's advocate of the 18th century and the noblest personality. Uh, the 18th century in an Irish context was not short of great people. Many of them, James Nappertandy, Theobald Wolfe Tone, Arthur O'Connor and Henry Joy McCracken, among the finest, were swept up in that kind of revolutionary fever that de- descended over Ireland and Europe in the 1790s, disciples of the rights of man. And Jonah Barrington, a lawyer, a judge, a politician and an occasional pistol duelist. Would describe the late 18th century beautifully as the age of wild democratic mania john philpot curran was one of the most remarkable men of that time known in his youth as stuttering jack curran he would go on to master that and become one of the greatest speakers of the age he was called to the irish bar in 1775 and he understood the law not as some rigid thing but as a battlefield and one in which he would defend and champion progressive ideas and causes he was a supporter Of Catholic emancipation he believed in enlarging the franchise and he was also a fluent Irish speaker unusual for a man of his faith and social class at a time when the language was being increasingly shunned by those around him in the court of law he defended many prominent members of the United Irishman that great Irish expression of the age he didn't always emerge victorious in these cases I mean the speech we're going to hear was brilliant but he still lost and perhaps some of these speeches were noble failures But the speeches remain fundamentally important to anyone who wants to understand that time. And he was not, and I stress this, a member of the Society of United Irishmen. One contemporary voice described the man whose speech we're about to hear as the leading advocate of every murderer, ruffian and low villain. But praise of Curran was also plentiful. The brilliant Byron said of him, The riches of his Irish imagination were exhaustless. I have heard that man speak more poetry than I have ever seen written down. And what we'll hear now is, I consider his finest moment, the defence of Archibald Hamilton Rowan of the United Irishmen on charge for seditious libel in 1794. Curran lost, but the speech remains a masterclass and it poses brilliant moral questions of its listenership.
3: Gentlemen, the representation of our people is the vital principle of their political existence. Without it, they are dead or they live only to servitude. Without it, there are two estates acting upon and against the third, instead of acting in cooperation with it. Without it, if the people are oppressed by their judges, where is the tribunal to which the judges can be amenable? Without it, if they are trampled upon and plundered by a minister, where is the tribunal to which the offender shall be amenable? Without it, where is the ear to hear or the heart to feel or the hand to redress their sufferings? Rely upon it. Physical man is everywhere the same. It is only the various operations of moral causes that give variety to the social or individual character and condition. How otherwise happens it that modern slavery looks quietly at the despot on the very spot where Leonidas expired? The answer is, Sparta has not changed her climate, but she has lost that government which her liberty could not survive. I call you, therefore, to the plain question of fact. This paper recommends a reform in Parliament. I put that question to your conscience. Do you think it needs that reform? I put it boldly and fairly to you. Do you think the people of Ireland are represented as they ought to be? Do you hesitate for an answer? If you do not feel the mockery of such a charge, look at your country. In what state do you find it? Is it in a state of tranquility and general satisfaction? These are the traces by which good are ever to be distinguished from bad governments without any very minute inquiry or speculative refinement? Do you feel that a veneration for the law, a pious and humble attachment to the Constitution from the political morality of your people? Do you find that comfort and competency amongst your people, which are always to be found, where a government is mild and moderate, where taxes are imposed by a body who have an interest in treating the poorer orders with compassion? and preventing the weight of taxation from pressing sore upon them. And here, gentlemen, I own, I cannot but regret that one of our countrymen should be criminally pursued for asserting the necessity of reform at the very moment when that necessity seems admitted by the Parliament itself, that this unhappy reform shall, at the same moment, be a subject of legislative discussion and criminal prosecution. Far am I from imputing any sinister design to the virtue or wisdom of our government, but who can avoid feeling the deplorable impression that must be made on the public mind when the demand for that reform is answered by a criminal information?
1: and moderate government (laughs) let's hope that news penetrates to leinster house without any further delay the light of evening lissadell great windows open to the south two girls in silk kimonos both beautiful one a gazelle wb Yeats's poem in memory of eva gore booth and con markovich presents two of ireland's most interesting women in their youth at home in the grand house uh, their grand anglo-irish household in county sligo they took quite divergent paths in life, but remained close until their respective deaths in the 1920s. By December 1918, three months into World War I, people were beginning to hear of the appalling conditions in the trenches. Eva Gore Booth, sister of the more famous Constance, was a convinced pacifist who had opposed the war from the beginning. She was involved in the women's suffrage movement and a central figure in the labor and trade union movement in Manchester, where she went to live, and where she represented barmaids, pit workers, and textile workers, overwhelmingly female uh, uh, occupations, very effectively. She visited her sister in the aftermath of the 1916 Rising when uh, Constance was under sentence of death and became a passionate opponent of the death penalty thereafter. She was a poet, quite a good poet, a dramatist and a painter. She died in 1926 and is buried with her lifelong partner, Esther Roper, in Hampstead in London. And we're very indebted to Sonia Tiernan for the great work that she has done on Eva's life and uh, work. The speech you're going to hear now was delivered in early December 1918 in London to the National Industrial and Professional Women's Suffrage Society. And it showcases her considerable oratorical skills as well as her horror of the toll of war on combatants and civilians. In its graphic delineation of that toll, it's a timeless evocation of why war should be avoided whenever possible. And as we watch the consequences in northern Syria of a fateful phone call just over a week ago from an unstable US president, Eva's words retain their descriptive and humanitarian power. Cathy? I
0: think... I may assume that none of us at present need any convincing as to the intolerable and squalid horror of war. We read in the papers every day as a matter of course of thousands of brave people of all countries shot dead or mutilated for life. We hear terrible tales of hardship, of the cold and wet and the unbearable filth of the trenches and of the frightful illness caused by privation and suffering, the brain affliction that is the result of staying for days with your feet in water. The tetanus that comes from poisonous conditions, the pneumonia and fevers, and the thousand and one cases of mental and nervous collapse that must be the results of the unnatural and hideous conditions of life. Then we hear of a devastated country, towns bombarded, villages burnt, crops destroyed, and thousands of people face to face with all the miseries of famine and homelessness. In our country, we are surrounded by our mourners, by people who have lost all that made life worth living whose nearest and dearest are lying dead among the unspeakable horrors of what is called the field of honor. The thought that forces itself on one's mind is that this state of things is not like any other great catastrophe, a mine disaster or a pestilence or a famine. It is not an accident are the consequence of some uncontrollable elementary force. It is the deliberate and calculated result of human willpower and intelligence, determined by some extraordinary paradoxical impulse on the destruction of everything that is of value to human life. We look back with horror on what are to us the foolish atrocities of the Middle Ages. Yet we seem to have changed in little except in our idea of righteousness. We no longer defend religion by force, but we are still ready to kill and destroy in the names of those we hold sacred, such as science, the good of the state, our country, and even liberty itself. In the time of the Inquisition, we tortured people's bodies, not to wreak our anger, but to save their souls. And no doubt, the Inquisitors honestly regretted the terrible necessity of inflicting pain for even such a glorious end. Nowadays, we vivisect animals, not for the pleasure of torturing them, but for the sake of the knowledge that they may in the end we think help science to combat disease. We hang murderers, not because anybody really thinks nowadays that revenge of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth kind is right or because we like doing what we think wrong, but simply because we think such revenge is necessary for the good of the state and the varied ups and downs of the suffrage movement, it became clear to many of us that expediency apart, the very real obstacle that stood in our way was the very strange and unreasonable superstition that physical force is the right and sensible basis for society. Now, physical force is not a possible basis for society It is the destruction of society. To found society on physical force is like founding it on a volcano. We see the logical result of such a foundation in the present catastrophe. Mr. Bernard Shaw points out that the only way you could really crush a nation is by killing all the women and of course the stability and strength of a society in time of war depends on the amount of its population it is able to keep outside the physical force arena. It is on them the future depends. They are the true foundation of the civilization of tomorrow. Society is really based on a contract of mutual help and goodwill among certain individuals very likely a peace interested motives, but still peace. And the use of physical force involves the canceling of this contract and consequently the breakdown of society. Society and civilization exist in England today, not because of war, but in spite of war.
2: Two speeches now from 1921 and the time of the Anglo-Irish Treaty uh, debates, one delivered in Dublin, uh, one delivered uh, in London. Two very different individuals, Edward Carson uh, and Mary McSweeney. Uh, like John Philpot Curran, Edward Carson was a man of the law, but there all similarities end. And some may be surprised by his inclusion uh, in this list today, but I think it's important to say that In compiling great Irish speeches and great Irish orators, we don't seek only to bring those we agree with and find agreeable forward today, but instead to judge these speeches and and the orators and orations on the basis of their power. In many ways, Lord Edward Carson uh, could be said to have introduced the gun into modern Irish politics. The foundation of the UVF, the Ulster Volunteer Force, greatly upped the temperature in early 20th century Ireland. Indeed, the Irish volunteers in Dublin, were very much a response to Carson's private army. For a man of the law, Edward Carson's understanding of the law could be very fluid. And in September 1913, he told the crowd in Newry that the Ulster volunteers are illegal and the government know they're illegal and the government dare not interfere with us. Don't be afraid of illegalities. The name Carsonia was, in a serious way, I kid you not, sometimes uttered by loyalists, who wondered what a British state in the northeast of Ireland would be called. Imagine if our neighbour was Carsonia, it could have happened. And today a statue of Edward Carson takes pride of place outside Stormont. The Dubliner from Harcourt Street, educated in Trinity College Dublin, has been there outside Stormont since 1932. That's very impressive, as Edward Carson died in 1935. He attended the unveiling of his own monument. It takes a certain confidence to attend the unveiling of a statue to yourself. The speech that we're going to hear from 1921 strikes a note of defiance in the House of Westminster. And despite living into the 1930s, there are no recordings of Edward Carson's voice, which I find very, very strange. Numerous contemporary sources speak about him as having a Dublin accent. Uh, In the word of one historian, he was, quote, Dublin born and sounding every syllable of it. A very unlikely father for the Northern Irish state. This speech is considered one of Carson's greatest.
3: I desire above all things to make my own position perfectly clear. I am not going to be led into making any suggestions whatsoever until I see how the government has discharged what is now their admitted duty of taking the initiative. But, I think it's right to say, and I would be a hypocrite if I did not say, what it would be impossible for us to accept so that we may, at all events, give the government some guide when they come to consider these suggestions. They are always talking of concessions to Ulster. Ulster is not asking for concessions. Ulster is asking to be let alone. When you talk of concessions, what you really mean is, we want to lay down what is the minimum of wrong we can do to Ulster. Let me tell you that the results of two years' delay and the treatment we have received during these two years have made your task and made our task far more difficult. You have driven these men to enter into a covenant for their mutual protection. No doubt you have laughed at their covenant. Have a good laugh at it now. Well, so far as I'm concerned, I'm not the kind of man who will go over to Ulster one day and say, enter into a covenant and go over the next day and say, break it. But there is something more. You have insulted them. I do not say the prime minister has done so. I would be wrong if I were to say that he has done so. He has treated them seriously. But the large body of his colleagues in the rank and file of his party have taken every opportunity of jeering at these men, of branding branding them as braggarts and bluffers and cowards and all the rest of it. Well, do you not see that having done that... These men can never go back, and never will go back, and allow these jibes and insults and sneers to prove true. The speech from the throne talks about the fears of these men. Yes, they have, I think, genuine fears for their civil and religious liberty under the bill. But do not imagine that that is all these men are fighting for. They are fighting for a great principle, a great ideal. They are fighting to stay under the government which they were invited to come under, under which they have flourished, and under which they are content, and to refuse to come under a government which they loathe and detest. Men do not make sacrifices or take up the attitude these men in Ulster have taken up on a question of detail or paper safeguards. I'm not going to argue whether they are right or wrong in resisting. It would be useless to argue it because they have thoroughly made up their minds. But I say this, if these men are not morally justified when they are attempted to be driven out of one government with which they are satisfied and put under another which they loathe, I do not see how resistance can ever be justified in history at all.
2: From Carson to Mary McSweeney, the Anglo-Irish treaty debates were bitter beyond words. To Erskine Childers, Arthur Griffith bellowed, I will not reply to any damned Englishman in this assembly. On the other side, those in favour of the treaty were accused of betraying the Republic and the dead. Words flew freely and within a matter of months, many of those who were shouting at each other in for Terrace, where the treaty debates took place, were back in military uniform fighting the Civil War. Mary McSweeney is too often described only as the sister of Terence McSweeney, but taking her out of his shadow, she was a remarkable figure who moved through the various movements that would shape Revolutionary Ireland, the Women's Franchise Leagues, Cumann Amman, Sinn Féin. All six female TDs present at the treaty debates opposed the treaty, including Margaret Pearce, the mother of Patrick and Willie Pearce, and McSweeney. Cumann Amán was the first national body to oppose the treaty. A similar organisation, Cumannistertia, would emerge to represent pro-treaty women. McSweeney's impassioned speech against the treaty, which we're about to hear given the level of emotion in it, it shouldn't surprise you to hear that she remained a voice of dissent within the new Irish state. When Eamon de Valera left Sinn Féin and founded Fina Fall in 1926, she remained behind. Later, she was among a small group of second-all TDs who met with the IRA Army Council in 1938 and signed over what they believed to be the authority of the government, the Sean Russell and the IRA. McSweeney and other Republican women like Elizabeth O'Farrell and Sheila Humphreys never made peace with the new Irish state. These women, brilliantly described as the unmanageable revolutionaries, would come to be the ones missing from the historic narratives in the years to come. They would never sit down and give statements to the Bureau of Military History, they would never sit down in front of RTA, of RTA cameras. This is Mary McSweeney's denunciation of the treaty. Part of it, she spoke for over three hours. We'll give you just a few minutes.
0: This fight of ours has been essentially a spiritual fight. It has been a fight of right against wrong, a fight of a small people struggling for a spiritual ideal against a mighty, rapacious and material empire. And as the things of the spirit have always prevailed, they prevail now. Up to last December, we had won the admiration of the world for our honor. And I tell the world, that the honour of Ireland is still unsullied and that Ireland will show it and will show that Ireland means fidelity to the Republic and not the driving of a coach and four through the oath which she will never consent to allow her ministers to take. This is a spiritual fight of ours, but though we are idealists, standing for a spiritual principle, We are practical idealists and it is your idealist that is the real practical man, not your opportunist. And watch the opportunists in every generation and you will see nothing but broken hopes behind them. It is those who stand for the spiritual and the ideal that stand true and unflinching and it is those who will win. Not those who can inflict most, but those who can endure most will conquer. The War of 1914 has left the world in a very different position from what the world was in before. It was thrown yesterday at Mr Childers that he wrote a book in 1911 showing that he did not believe in the Irish Republic. I stand here, and nobody will tell me that I am not an Irish Republican. But I can truthfully say, and I challenge any member in this assembly to say otherwise, that in 1911, I did not believe that I would see an Irish Republic established in my generation. The war brought many changes. The war brought forth idealists and the self-determination of small nationalities. The right to express their freedom in their own way was bandied about from one government to another, and every government in the world has been false to us but our own. Still, all the peoples of the world have not been false to it. The peoples of the world, including a growing number of the people in England, are true to that ideal. They want peace. And they know that peace can never be established, except on the basis of truth and justice to all alike. Therefore, our fight today has a chance of victory. You have told us it is between the acceptance of that document and war. If it were, with every sense of deep responsibility, I say, then let us take war. I'm not speaking as a young, ardent enthusiast. I am speaking as a woman who has taught and studied much, who realises, as only a woman can, the evils and the sufferings of war.
1: speech comes from one of the key players at that time, uh, Eamon de Valera, but it's much later. It was broadcast and listened to by the whole country on the 16th of May 1945, and it's Eamon de Valera's repost to Winston Churchill's attack on Ireland's neutrality in World War II, which had been broadcast three days earlier. In that speech, Churchill, Churchill had yet again expressed his fury at ERA's uh, refusal to to bring back the ports, to give back the ports which de Valera had secured in 1938, and delivered a retrospective threat to come to close quarters with Mr. de Valera, as he called him. I wish I could do a good imitation of Churchill. I really should have asked Brian to do this because, of course, he could do a fantastic imitation of Churchill. Anyway, here's the relevant bit from his speech uh, three days before. Owing to the action of Mr. de De Valera, so much at variance with the temper and instinct of thousands of southern Irishmen who hastened to the battlefront to prove their ancient valour, the approaches which the southern Irish ports and airfields could so easily have guarded were closed by the hostile aircraft and U-boats. This was indeed a deadly moment in our life, and if it had not been for the loyalty and friendship of Northern Ireland, we should have been forced to come to close quarters with Mr. de Valera or perish forever from this earth. As usual, a lot of um, hyperbole there. De Valera's response was broadcast at 10 o'clock on a Sunday night, so everybody heard it. He was a master of PR. Uh, Brandon O'Hare described him once as uh, arriving into small towns in Ireland at twilight with blazing sods of turf all around him, wearing a long black cloak and mesmerising the people in bad Irish. There's a good description. of He knew what he was about. So he waited three days, took a lot of time thinking about this speech, Um, And everyone sat up listening to it on the wireless. I was reared on recollections of this speech from my parents. My mother came from a Cumberland Ale background. My father was a Clare man and therefore a dev fanatic. But both of them agreed that this was a fantastic moment of uh, revenge against perfidious Albion and that the national pride had been restored. So I knew chunks of it before I ever heard a recording of it. We all know now that Ireland was neutral on the side of the Allies, sharing important intelligence with GCHQ and crucial weather reports, including the one that allowed D-Day to go ahead. I'm sure all of you have heard the story of the, the weather forecaster in Mayo who arranged for that. 50,000 Irishmen joined the British forces, uh, and 5,000 deserted the Irish army to do the same. So it could be said we did our bit. Churchill knew most of this at the time he made this speech, so slightly villainous. The speech is a masterpiece of forbearance and cleverly structured oratory. Dev patronizes Churchill by acknowledging that he was entitled to be a little intemperate in the first flush of victory, but that he, de Valera, had no such excuse. He manages to turn Ireland's 700-year resistance to English oppression into an object lesson for the defence of small nations. He even asked Churchill how would he like it if the Germans had won the Second World War and had taken over Yorkshire uh, to be um, a German colony and where people had to speak German and get on their lives under Nazi rule. I do not think Mr Churchill would like that, he says. So he's giving it to him right, left and centre and the speech must have driven Churchill... Nuts. (laughs) Nuts, <laughs> Ryan.
3: Certain newspapers have been very persistent in looking for my answer to Mr. Churchill's recent broadcast. I know the kind of answer I am expected to make. I know the answer that first springs to the lips of every man of Irish blood who heard or read that speech, no matter in what circumstances or in what part of the world he found himself. I know the reply I would have given a quarter of a century ago, but I have deliberately decided that that is not the reply I shall make tonight. I shall strive not to be guilty of adding any fuel to the flames of hatred and passion which, if continued to be fed, promised to burn up whatever is left by the war of decent human feeling in Europe. Allowances can be made for Mr. Churchill's statement, however unworthy, in the first flush of his victory. No such excuse could be found for me in this quieter atmosphere. There are, however, some things which it is my duty to say, some things which it is essential to say, I shall try to say them as dispassionately as I can. Mr. Churchill makes it clear that in certain circumstances he would have violated our neutrality and that he would justify his action by Britain's necessity. It seems strange to me that Mr. Churchill does not see that this, if accepted, would mean Britain's necessity would become a moral code and that when this necessity became sufficiently great, other people's rights were not to count. It is indeed fortunate that Britain's necessity did not reach the point when Mr. Churchill would have acted. All credit to him that he successfully resisted the temptation which, I have no doubt, many times assailed him in his difficulties, and to which I freely admit many leaders might have easily succumbed. It is indeed hard for the strong to be just to the weak. But acting justly always has its rewards. By resisting his temptation in this instance, Mr. Churchill, instead of adding another horrid chapter to the already bloodstained record of the relations between England and this country, has advanced the cause of international morality, an important step. One of the most important, indeed, that I can be taken on the road to the establishment of any sure basis for peace. That Mr. Churchill should be irritated when our neutrality stood in the way of what he thought he vitally needed, I understand. But that he or any thinking person in Britain or elsewhere should fail to see the reason for our neutrality, I find hard to concede. Mr. Churchill is proud of Britain's stand-alone after France had fallen and before America entered the war. Could he not find in his heart the generosity to acknowledge that there is a small nation that stood alone not for one year or two, but for several hundred years against aggression, that endured spoilations, famines, massacres, and endless succession that was clubbed many times into insensibility, but that each time on returning consciousness took up the fight anew? a small nation that could never be got to accept defeat and has never surrendered her soul. Mr. Churchill is justly proud of his nation's perseverance against heavy odds, but we in this island are still prouder of our people's perseverance for freedom throughout the centuries. We of our time have played our part in the perseverance. And we have pledged ourselves to the dead generations who have persevered intact for us this glorious heritage, that we, too, will strive to be faithful to the end and pass on this tradition unblemished.
2: Moving from the 1940s uh, to the 1960s, Bernadette Devlin uh, today, Bernette Devlin Michalisky. Bernadette Devlin was elected to the British Parliament in 1969, really in the, the twilight years between the emergence of a civil rights movement in the north of Ireland and the horror that was yet to come, uh, the carnage of Bloody Sunday, which changed everything. At the time of her election, she was the youngest MP in the House, and she would remain the youngest woman ever elected until 2015, when a 20-year-old, Mary Black, was elected for the SNP. And Bernalette Devlin stood on the slogan, I will take my seat and fight for your rights. Remember, there was a long-standing Republican tradition of not sitting in the British Parliament, but she did so. Devlin made her name in the Battle of the Bogside, uh, for which she was convicted of incitement to riot in December 1969. And as a leading figure of people's democracy, she became a hate figure for the Unionist press. She embodied something, confident internationalist generation of young Catholics who had gone on to university, who took their influence as much from Alabama as they did from the annals of Irish history. At the time of her election, her autobiography, The Price of My Soul, became a bestseller. Uh, It's written with the fiery passion of one who was young and who believes that change was not only desirable, but was inevitable. On the Battle of the Bogside, she writes, we'd reached a turning point in Irish history, and we reached it because of the determination of one group of people in a Catholic slum area in Derry. In 50 hours, we brought a government to its knees and we gave back to a downtrodden people their pride and the strength of their convictions. Today, we'll hear something of her maiden speech to the British Parliament. And as she was speaking, she encountered real opposition from across the floor, but she kept it together. Bernadette remains a voice in Irish life today, uh, preferring to think about the future than the past.
0: I understand that in making my maiden speech on the day of my arrival in Parliament, and in making it on a controversial issue, I flout the unwritten traditions of the House. But I think that the situation of my people merits the flighting of such traditions. I remind the Honourable Member for Londonderry, Mr Chichester Clark, that I too was in the Bogside area on the night that he was there. As the Honourable Gentleman rightly said, there never was born an Englishman who understands the Irish people. Thus a man who is alien to the ordinary working Irish people cannot understand them. And I therefore respectfully suggest that the Honourable Gentleman has no understanding of my people because Catholics and Protestants are the ordinary people the oppressed people from whom I come and whom I represent. I stand here as the youngest woman in Parliament, in the same tradition as the first woman ever to be elected to this Parliament, Countess Markovich, who was elected on behalf of the Irish people. The Honourable Member for Londonderry said that he stood in Bogside, I wonder whether he could name the streets through which he walked in the Bogside, so that we might establish just how well acquainted he became with the area. I'd never hoped to see the day when I might agree with someone who represents the bigoted and sectarian Union Party, which uses a deliberate policy of dividing the people in order to keep the ruling minority in power and to keep the oppressed people of Ulster oppressed. I never thought I should see the day when I should agree with any phrase uttered by the representative of such a party. But the honourable gentleman summed up the situation to a T. He referred to stark human misery. That is what I saw in Bogside. It has not been there just for one night. It has been there for 50 years and that same stark human misery is to be found in the Protestant fountain area which the Honourable Gentleman would claim to represent. These are that people the Honourable Gentleman would claim do want to join society because they are equally poverty-stricken, they're equally excluded from the society which the Unionist Party represents. The Society of Landlords, who by ancient charter of Charles II, still hold the rights of the ordinary people of Northern Ireland over such things as fishing, and has paid the most ridiculous and exorbitant rents, although families have lived for generations on their land But this is the ruling minority of landlords who, for generations, have claimed to represent one section of the people. And in order to maintain their claim, divide the people into two sections. And stand up in this house and say, there are those who do not wish to join society.
1: I'm going to finish up with two speeches from the 1990s uh, on on two of the most divisive and eventually unifying issues that we had uh, from the 1980s on, uh, 1970s on, I suppose Um, abortion and the decriminalization of homosexuality. The Eighth Amendment to the Irish Constitution was enacted in 1983 after a divisive and bitter referendum campaign which came down two to one in favour of the proposition. The state acknowledges that the right to life of the unborn acknowledges the right to life of the unborn and with due regard to the equal right to life of the mother guarantees in its laws to respect and as far as practicable by its laws to defend and vindicate that right. At the time, a lot of people, including Attorney General Peter Sutherland, warned that what became Article 433 of the Constitution would cause immense trouble and create a legal minefield as regards competing rights between mother and unborn. These were ignored and politicians in fear of a vocal so-called pro-life movement scuttled to espouse an amendment which caused terrible suffering to an estimated 170,000 Irish women and which was finally dispatched from our lives on the 25th of May last year. Now, shortly after the referendum was passed, the legal wrangling began. In a number of cases, the Supreme Court held that this new provision of the Constitution prohibited information within the state on the availability of abortion services outside of the state. Two cases, Spock, Spock was the Society for the Protection of the Unborn Child, Versus Open Door Counselling in 1988 and Spock versus Grogan in 1989, the courts granted injunctions restraining two counselling agencies from assisting women to travel abroad to obtain abortions or informing them of the methods of communication with such clinics, uh, and also an injunction restraining three students' unions from di- distributing information uh, in, in relation to abortion available outside the state. These rulings were overturned by the 13th and 14th Amendments to the Constitution in 1992, which explicitly gave people the right to travel abroad from an abortion and to receive information in Ireland about abortion available abroad. The fact that we had to have a referendum on the right to travel should have alerted all of us that there was something bonkers going on, but the alarm bells didn't ring until much later. The Attorney General versus X, the X case, the famous X case in 1992. In that case, the High Court granted an injunction to the Attorney-General restraining a 14-year-old girl who had been raped from obtaining an abortion in England. On appeal, the Supreme Court found that as the girl had shown a risk of suicide to safeguard the, quote, equal right to life of the mother in Article 43.3, abortion was permissible in these circumstances. The most trenchant judgment delivered in that case was that of Mr Justice Niall McCarthy, who took the government to task for failing to enact legislation on foot of the referendum result, Many of us will remember his words. What are pregnant women to do? What are the parents of a pregnant girl underage to do? What are the medical profession to do? He described the failure of the, uh, the legislature to act as inexcusable at this point. Arguably, he went beyond the requirements of his task in this case, but he sensibly highlighted the glaring gap between aspiration and reality created by the Eighth Amendment and its implications. Brian. The
3: right of the girl here is a right to a life in being. The right of the unborn is to a life contingent, contingent on survival in the womb until successful delivery. It is not a question of setting one above the other, but rather of vindicating, as far as practicable, the right to life of the girl stroke mother, whilst with due regard to the equal right to life of the girl stroke mother, vindicating as far as practicable the right to life of the unborn. If the right to life of the mother is threatened by the pregnancy and it is practicable to vindicate that right, then because of the due regard which must be paid to the equal right to life of the mother, it may not be practicable to vindicate the right to life of the unborn. What then What then? does threatened mean? In my judgment, it is not a question of balancing the life of the unborn against the life of the mother. If it were, the life of the unborn would virtually always have to be preserved, since the termination of pregnancy means the death of the unborn. There is no certainty, however, high the probability that the mother will die if there is not a termination of pregnancy. In my view, the true construction of the amendment, bearing in mind the other provisions of Article 40 and the fundamental rights of the family guaranteed by Article 41, is that paying due regard to the equal right of life to the mother when there is a real and substantial risk attached to her survival, not merely at the time of application, but in contemplation at least throughout the pregnancy, then it may not be practicable to vindicate the right to life of the unborn. On the facts of the case, which are not in contest, I am wholly satisfied that a real and substantial risk that the girl might take her own life was established. It follows that she should not be prevented from having a medical termination of pregnancy. This conclusion leads inevitably to the recognition that the wording of the amendment contemplates abortion lawfully taking place within this state. I think it reasonable, however, to hold that the people, when enacting the amendment, were entitled to believe that legislation would be introduced so as to regulate the manner in which the right to life of the unborn and the right to life of the mother could be reconciled. In the context of the eight years that have passed since the amendment was adopted, the failure by the legislature to enact the appropriate legislation is no longer just unfortunate, it is inexcusable. What are pregnant women to do? What are the parents of a pregnant girl underage to do? What are the medical profession to do? They have no guidelines, save what may be gleaned from the judgments in this case. What additional considerations are there? Is the victim of rape, statutory or otherwise, or the victim of incest, finding herself pregnant, to be assessed in a manner different from others?' The amendment born of public disquiet, historically divisive of our people, guaranteeing in its laws to respect and by its laws to defend the right to life of the unborn, remains bare of legislative direction. Does the right to bodily integrity involve the right to control one's own body? I cannot disregard the facts that whatever the exact numbers are, there is no doubt that in the eight years since the enactment of the amendment, many thousands of Irish women have chosen to travel to England to have abortions. It is ironic that out of those many thousands, in one case of a girl of 14, victim of sexual abuse and statutory rape in the care of loving parents who chose with her to embark on further trauma, having sought help from priest, doctor, and guardie and with an outstanding sense of responsibility to the law of the land, should have the full panoply of the law brought to bear on them in their anguish.
1: Niall McCarthy was the first chair of the National Archives Advisory Council, the place that I used to work in, and um, he was tremendously good company. Uh, I took him on a tour once of one of the government departments that had been particularly derelict looking after its records and had regular bonfires out the back and shredding machines everywhere and he said to me at the end of the visit it's very unusual to find that people are both unpleasant and incompetent at the same time (laughs) usually they're one or the other like they can be pleasant and incompetent or really nasty and very good at their jobs but to have the two together and every single person we met today was like that so he's, he's a sad loss he unfortunately died tragically in a car crash with his wife in Spain in 1994, after delivering that extraordinary judgment, which laid out for the first time the fact that the Eighth Amendment did indeed contemplate legal abortion in Ireland and started the long, slow um, campaign to repeal that amendment. We're going to finish with uh, another really important uh, social issue in this country where attitudes again changed considerably over a fairly short period of time and that is the campaign to decriminalise homosexuality. It's a very long campaign going back to the early 1970s with several heroes and heroines like David Norris, Mary Robinson, Mary McAleese, Chris Robson, Kieran Rose and many others. Senator Norris's case in the European Court of Human Rights produced a landmark judgment in 1988 that Irish laws prohibiting male homosexual activities were in contravention of the European Convention on Human Rights. Five years later, Maura Gagin Quinn, Minister for Justice, and the first full female cabinet minister in Ireland since Constance Markovich became Minister for Labour in 1919, introduced the Criminal Law Sexual Offences 1993 Bill, which included decriminalisation of male homosexual acts, Lesbians weren't contemplated in 1861 when the Offences Against the Person Act uh, was passed. That that is the the relevant law, both for this and for abortion. They say Queen Victoria could not imagine the idea of a lesbian and what they might get up to. So they they were free to do whatever they wished all through this time. (laughs) It was just the blokes who were getting a hard time being sent to jail. The bill passed overwhelmingly, although certain provisions relating to prostitution, which was a sort of omnibus bill that wasn't just about this one subject, prevented some Iraqis members from voting for it, including, ironically, Senator Norris himself. The president, who had the task of signing the bill into law, was serendipitously Mary Robinson, long-time advocate of gay rights. Attitudes in Ireland towards LGBT people are now regarded as among the most liberal in the world. Ireland is notable for its transformation from a country holding overwhelmingly conservative attitudes towards LGBT issues to one holding overwhelmingly literal, uh, liberal ones in the space of a generation. In May 2015, Ireland became the first country to legalise same-sex marriage uh, on a national level by decisive popular vote. And that was a day of great celebration for many people who had been fighting for a long time for that right. Mauregag Gagan Quinn's speech to the Doyle when introducing the bill, emphasizes the human rights dimensions of the legislation it's notable for its mature and restrained tone and for her appeal to parents with gay children which is eloquent and effective that a Fina Foy minister and a female one at that took charge of this legislation created an aura of inevitability about its passage which smoothed its journey through the Iraqis. Kathy.
0: The primary purpose of this bill, which forms part of a comprehensive program of reform of the criminal law, which I have underway at present, is to decriminalize sexual activity between consenting mature males. While it is the case that the main sections of the bill arise against a background of the European Court decision in the Norris case, it would be a pity to use that judgment as the sole pretext for the action we are now taking, so as to avoid facing up to the issues themselves. What we are concerned with fundamentally in this bill is a necessary development of human rights. We are seeking to end that form of discrimination which says that those whose nature is to express themselves sexually in their personal relationships as consenting adults in a way which others disapprove of or feel uneasy about, must suffer the sanctions of the criminal law. We are saying in 1993, over 130 years since that section of the criminal law was enacted, that it is time we brought this form of human rights limitation to an end. We are recognizing that we are in an era in which values are being examined and questioned and that it is no more than our duty as legislators to show that we appreciate what is happening by dismantling a law which reflects the values of another time. As a people, we have proved our ability to adopt a balanced and mature approach in dealing with complex social issues. In this context, I am particularly pleased to note that, by and large, the public debate which has taken place in relation to the area covered by the bill has been marked by a lack of stringency and by a respect for the sincerity of the views held by others. Does anybody believe that if the laws from the last century, which we are now seeking to repeal, did not in fact exist we would now be seriously suggesting that they would be enacted? How can we reconcile criminal sanctions in this area with the fact that there is a whole range of other private consenting behaviour between adults, which may be regarded by many as wrong, but in which the criminal law has no part to play? I know that there are parents who will know what it means in practice to have a child whose very nature it is to be homosexual. Very few of them would, I believe, be likely to regard it as helpful if in later life one of their own children was an active homosexual liable to imprisonment. Under the present law, up to life imprisonment, for giving expression to his sexual orientation I do not believe that it is any answer to say that in practice these laws are rarely, if ever, implemented, and we would be best to leave well enough alone. Such an approach would be dishonest, could bring the law generally into disrepute, and it seems to me would be grossly offensive to those who happen to be homosexual. Genuine tolerance is not achieved by turning Of a blind eye. The social acceptability of homosexuality is not something which by our laws we can decree. The hurt which homosexuals feel at their treatment as outcasts by some members of the community is not something which we can dispel by the use of some legislative magic wand. What we can do under the terms of this bill is to leave those of homosexual orientation free to come to terms with their lives and express themselves in personal relationships without the fear of being branded and being punished as criminals. In all of the meetings and deputations I received since I became Minister for Justice in January, the person who had the most influence on my thinking in this regard was the mother of a young homosexual man who indicated that when her 19-year-old son told her he was homosexual, her reaction was to tell him he would grow out of it, that it was abnormal. She brought him to her general practitioner, to a psychologist, to a psychiatrist. And finally, after a painful 80 months, she realized that this was something with which she had to live. She had to ask herself a very serious question. One which any parent should ask, in particular those who have doubts or difficulties with this legislation should ask, what they would say to a son of 17 or 18 years of age whom they had loved since birth if he told them he was homosexual. They would need to show love, understanding, and tolerance. I hope this house will do that in regard to this bill.
1: So you've heard eight speeches ranging from the late 18th century to the late 20th century, which I suppose all of them to one degree or another concentrate on people's rights, even if we don't agree with the definition of, of, of those rights in some cases. Um, and I hope that we've showcased some brilliant orators, but also some people who are not necessarily brilliant orators, but have very important things to say in the context of Irish political development. Thanks for being a wonderful audience. Uh, and please thank our two marvellous actors, Brian.
0: Thank you for listening to this podcast from the Dublin Festival of History, brought to you by Dublin City Council. You can find out more about the festival on dublinfestivalofhistory.ie and
2: by following us on Twitter where we're at HistFest.